Welcome to this edition of the Disciples Men podcast with your host Greg Alexander and Alex Ruth. Thank you for joining us as we explore the many challenges of being man of faith in these challenging times. Disciples Men is a ministry of Disciples Home Missions of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in the U.S. and Canada. Let's listen in today's conversation. Welcome to another edition of the Disciples Men's Podcast. I'm the Associate Director of Disciples Men, Alex Ruth. Glad to have you with us on this day. And for this conversation, I think it's going to be a a fun and interesting conversation uh, today. Uh, With us, as always, we have our Director of Disciples Men, Greg Alexander. Greg, good to have you with us. Thank you, Alex. Always good to be here. Looking forward to this conversation today. And today, our special guest is the Minister of Reconciliation for the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in the U.S. and Canada. It's Reverend April Johnson. April, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Thank you, Alex and Greg, for having me. I was looking up you guys on email and I said, oh, I have Alex squared today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's been the fun one is that we have... Alex in our names a lot. It's kind of interesting. uh, Well, April, we like to start these off uh, just by uh, letting our guests give our listeners a chance to to get to know you. Um, So if you would, tell us a little bit about um, uh, April's story. What brings you to uh, the place you are in ministry today? How did you get to being the Minister of Reconciliation? What's your faith journey look like? Wow. Do you know this July, I will be in this capacity and this role for 13 years. Um, And there are times when it feels like 13 years. (laughs) Um, And there are times when it feels like, wow, it seems like it was just three years ago. Right, um, right. I um, I I went to um, I moved to Washington D.C. with my work, and I attended National City Christian Church, and I had been at, um, attending a Baptist church prior to moving to Washington D.C. from Chicago, and um, Alvin Jackson had been the revivalist at the, my Baptist church here in Chicago when I lived here twenty something years ago, and. Um, Alvin kind of helped me through seminary, you know, he kind of, you know, coached me and, and um, I was a youth pastor during seminary at a Baptist church and both pastors were like, well, you're going to be ordained Baptist, right? And one was like, you're going to be ordained disciples, right? So, <laughs> um, so somehow whether one of them won, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, and mainly um, from that journey, I um, really appreciated the way in which disciples invited me uh, to be uh, part of disciples unfolding story. It wasn't the, it wasn't this catechism I had to, you know, prove or, you know, it's just, this is, you know, we are who we are and we are who you help us to become. And I really appreciate that invitation. So I left DC and became a, a chaplain. Um, I guess I extended my youth um, ministry uh, as a college chaplain uh, for the next six years. And um, I ended up I say this when I do entrance and training. I was sitting in my office in the, what was the administration building at the time, and the president's office is just below me. And I got an email from his secretary that said, Middle Eastern men are storming airport airplane cockpits. And it was one of those broadcast all emails. And um, before I knew it, I printed it off because that's what you did back in those days. You know, you printed things. And I ran to the into the president's office, walked right by his assistant, and um, I said, this can't happen here. This simply cannot happen here. And he said, well, why didn't you say something to her? I said, this is not her problem. This is a systemic problem. Not realizing what I was saying, what I was inviting myself into. And so we, we had a good talk. And um, a year later, I became the director of diversity services for Augustana College. Um, and a um, young um, Bible scholar joined this faculty, um, about four years later there and his wife was disciple and I was quite lonely at a Lutheran small private liberal arts college. So we became friends and she happened to be on the council for Christian unities um, board at the time. And when we were 
disciples were in this search for the executive director for reconciliation, she um, brought my name up unbeknownst to her and to me, I'd already been invited to candidate. And I was like, oh no, Indiana is the same as the small town here where I am in Western Illinois. I'm, I'm fine. My next stop is Chicago, you know, right. um, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to stay in the academy. Um, but then Sharon Watkins called me. So enough said, you know, I was done. Um, <laughs> And the rest is history. So I've been here for 13 years and, you know, kind of, we call this, um, your vocation can sometimes be a zigzag, mm. you know, so it's never a straight line. And so this is um, a stop on my zig. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm zigging or I'm zagging now, but. <laughs> I am, I'm always amazed as we've heard these stories, they're just marvelous stories of how, you know, our marvelous leaders in our church have gotten to be in the places they are, and uh, I had not heard your story, April, and that's a uh, that's wonderful. I've had I have had the privilege over the years of watching you start and grow this ministry, yes, and uh, been a recipient of much of what you have to share to us. And I would be curious if you could kind of walk us through some of the phases that you've sort of you know I think there's some categories of phases of how this your ministry's progressed. And, and then kind of help us understand where it is today. Awesome, yeah. Um, when I came on board, we had been um, doing, we had switched recently. I mean, so we had been doing reconciliation as anti-racism training mm -hmm. when I came on in 2008, I believe. And that was the witness of reconciliation. Um, and before, um, before we switched in 99, 2000, as we were doing racism, um, the root cause of racism is poverty. So we were just doing grants and giving grants out. And then we started this training. And when I came on board, many of the people I met, white men in particular, would say to me, oh, um, you are directing that training from hell. Mm. Wow. And to a number to a number almost. Oh. Um, and I finally got the courage to ask some of them, have you been to this training, you know? And they said, oh no, I'm not going to that. I just heard it was a training from hell. So um, I had to, you know, it was like a come of Jesus for me. I had to admit that they clearly don't like this training, you know? <laughs> so, um, and, and for me, I thought that this was, you know, this was gonna change the church's life. We were gonna, build out this training program and people were gonna just show up. So what we were doing at the time, we were doing this kind of y'all come type style. Like, you know, we get some um, poor suspecting um, bleeding heart that would invite us to do a training, then they would just invite. And sometimes we'd have 50 people in the room and sometimes we'd have five. So it was just really kind of hit or miss. And so we, I realized that we had to kind of one, make it invitational mm -hmm. and that it had to be, and it had to be something that was a part of um, the, 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 the people, the requesters um, desire for transformation. It couldn't just be a, a one and done. So we went from, um, so I started doing relationship building and, and working you know, sometimes with the College of Regional Ministers. And you know, it, was, it was a really hard ask with the college sometimes because each ministry of the church has an ask of the college, right? Because the college is this middle judicatory that represents every ministry of the church. Uh, so, um, we started getting um, kind of a groundswell of pastors that would ask, well, this training is good. And I, you know, I, I, I liked it, but I don't know if it's having any impact until we make it more formal. So I, I started to realize that we need to have some type of trajectory. And with the help of some, some pastors in the life of the church uh, and in pushing their regional ministers, we began, I mean, I'm going to say I want to say seven years in, I mean, it was a long time, five to seven years in, we started to get a groundswell of folks saying, we need to, we agree, we need to make this some type of trajectory. It can't be a one and done. It can't be a, we did this training thing. Um, so what we did is we, I started building out a cadre of trainers. Because at the time when I came up, we had four people, the only people could facilitate training. And that was, you know, if we had the demand I wanted, we would never be able to fulfill Training. So we started um, training uh, trainers first by spiritual, you know, gifts. It's like, okay, who has these gifts? Who, who was God discerning that should be doing this work? And most of those folks are still with us, but thank God. Um, and so we began to um, get some really gifted people facilitating the training, and they then helped to promote the idea that this needs to be 
this is our identity. So this needs to be a part of how we witness to the broader church. And, um, and I want to say in 2012, we began to have some regions require anti-racism training for clergy standing. So that began to focus our mission and, and, and witness again, just on training. So we didn't really want that to be just that, but it ended up, so we ended up having more, um, needing more capacity to facilitate training, but it also began to start the transformation process, I think. Um, so we started building out and we started working on making the training a conversation so that it was more of a, um, an invitation to um, not a one and done, but to an ongoing conversation that will help us contextualize what not just a region, but what a ultimately a congregation or a community would need to do to have this identity. So we've um, so we've been working on that, and I can say at this juncture now we can we are getting a lot of requests for trainings from congregations who want to have. And I I want to say this my that's all my doing, but let's be realistic. It is really the doing of um, the sign of the times that we're in. You know, it's just the reality. We realize that what we've always said in the anti-racism training is that the way in which racism uses us all is not the way we want to be used. Mm-hmm. It's not part of our identity. So with the uh, with um, the last since 2012, with the onset of you know televised um, state-sanctioned killing of Black and Brown men and women. And then with the um, building of capacity and a desire for clergy to be conversant in this as they move throughout the church, um, it has really become a large training program. And we still uh, are working to contextualize it. So we're grateful that we're now moving into having congregations sponsor uh, trainings. And we're moving now from that training platform that is supposed to be a tool to now certifying congregations to be anti-racist congregations. And we're uh, working on building like we have with Green Chalice and um, Alliance Q congregations, building uh, what are the marks of an anti-racist congregation? So I'm grateful for that. And I had a chance in the last, um, I wanna say the last three years to begin to remind the church that Reconciliation Ministry for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ is a mission fund. So, and it's not just to fund training, um, but if that's our witness, if this is effective, then it will be funded as well as the grants that we fund so that we, so that our story is told through our witness, either at the congregational level or through clergy who have this new um, equipping uh, through this conversation they've been a part of as part of securing their standing. Yeah. I, as much as I grieve to hear that you got that pushback at the beginning uh, of the training from hell, um, it, unfortunately, that is part and parcel of some of our, you know, I, I am contextually in a small town ministry and know a lot of other small town ministers mm-hmm. who tend to be white guys like me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I still hear, I still hear some of that you know, have even still heard some of that in the last couple of years. And it, it's so important for us to, to be engaged in that conversation of, yes, this training is hard because it opens us up to realizing how much privilege we really, I really have had uh, growing up, you know, to, to understand that, there are actions that I really do need to take now to become anti-racist. Uh, you know, it's not just, oh, I'm not a racist. I need to be anti-racist. I need to be active. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you need to move from being, as Ibram Kendi has helped us who are reading his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, to move from being um, non-racist to anti-racist. Right. Which is, a little more technical. Um, we get tangled up in in language a lot around this, and you know, looking back um, over these past twelve years, um, one of the things that I, I thought was going to be important was that to contextualize it. So it wasn't 
it wasn't so harsh. When I came on board, we literally with these, you know, these few four trainers were literally saying, shut up and listen. You know, so that doesn't pretty much, you know, do a relationship, you know, it's like, you know, so that, so we had some work to do ourselves. We had to mature, um, but we also had to have something for you to listen to. And what we had to say, I remember, um, this is probably how I ended up in this job too. I cornered Sharon Watkins at a, a general assembly before I came to this position or some convening that we had. And I said, um, hi, I'm April Johnson. I work at Augustana College. I'm the director of diversity services there. And um, I think that our anti-racism training is, I think it's a step before people are ready to have this conversation. She says, I think so too. You know, so that could be also how I got here. But I, I <laughs> recognize that for me as a woman of color, racism is not a conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. you know, but um, so it's very, it's, it, I experience it differently. So I'm going to have a different attention span for that conversation. But this is a conversation that we don't typically have in polite company. Mm-hmm. And so it's a delicate balance between um not being an apologist for the reality of racism and challenging participants, but also um, contextualize it to the point where it is an invitation for an ongoing conversation. Transformation is a process, right? Yes. Um, be- becoming and being anti-racist is a process. Um, and I think one of the things that we really have been trying to do is to invite people to understand that we evolve. And so if we start the conversation off with, and what I also heard a lot was, well, that's the training where they say, if you're white, you must be racist. You know, and they didn't hear the part where he says, no, all of us are conscripted into a racist narrative. Yes. And it's not all that we are. So we never hear that part, we only hear the part. And, and so, and if you tell me, um, if I'm African-American, I'm criminal, I'm going to push back. Right. Right. And I'm not going to listen to you anymore. So that was the struggle that we had to strike that delicate balance between this is not all that we're saying. And so some of it ha- had to happen is that we had to, one, again, remind people that anti-racism training is a conversation. It's not a one and done. And it's not all that we do as a in, you know, witness for the church. We are, we're not a general ministry. We are a witness. We are part of the church's witness. So um, how do we invite you to em- embody this witness? And, and that's hard because if this is not a conversation you have in polite company on a regular basis, how do we get you to keep listening? Right. You know, so that's been the kind of challenge of our trainers. And so, how do we get to the point where we can have these can be very difficult, but very crucial conversations. How do we begin to have them in polite company? Um, you know, how how do we begin to have a dialogue and debate that can transform all people mm-hmm. towards something a little more whole and healthy? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I I did as I started my um. Uh, doctorate in in ministry um, program is I took a class with Brian McLaren um, that I should have probably audited, but it was in Florida where Brian lived. So, you know, I kind of had to show up um, because I needed to show up in Florida. Right. Um, And he asked us to, it's something I'd like to see the church do this. So he asked us to, um, work in, in groups and present a project that if, you know, the sky was the limit or there were no limitations, um, what would you present in your ministry context that would be a, um, a, um, a, a something that would change your ministry, something that would be a, um, what's the, the word I'm looking for? Um, I always say I'm trying to develop um, ministers that are change agents, but there's a there's language around that. But anyway, something that would, and so I said, what I would like to do. And so what we did is that we broke into small groups of like four or five, and then everyone had a role in the group. And so one person would be the um, the 
person who had the product. So it was like a marketing campaign. And the other people would be like, there would be a, a writer and there would be uh, someone who would market this. And there would be someone who would say, your idea is stupid or your idea is fantastic. Why are you sitting on your, you know, do something with this. So um, I said, what I would like to do is, this is like in 2017, I would like to invite the whole church, we're gonna go into our general assembly to consider having the conversation before the training conversation in their congregations. And I said, I, I am a tea drinker. And I noticed when I leave the, the United States that people take tea. They don't take it and run, they take tea, um, they sit down. And I said, there's so much to the art of tea that we could learn in you know, having this pre-conversation, this priming the pump conversation. So I'm wondering what we could do to like invite people to tea. So my marketing person was like, just writing the whole time I was talking and he drew this cross and he put these questions on the, the axes of the cross. And it came into this thing that we now have, you may be familiar with called one bag of tea. So it's called one, one cup of tea one bag of tea, one cup, one relationship. And um, I fundamentally believe that we cannot have difficult conversation in any kind of company unless we are intentional about relationship. Mm -hmm. So um, it's gone over fairly well, you know, not, you know, I can't say, wow, you know, we don't even have to do training anymore. We just do one bag of tea. Uh -huh. Um, that would be amazing if it was transformative. But congregations have gotten together just in congregations and had this conversation. And there's no questions on that teabag cover that's formed to a cross that has, says anything about racism. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you know, who's the biggest influence in your life? You know, things that we think we know about people we go to church with, but we actually don't take the time to do that. You know, we probably over coffee hour, we talk about our busy schedules, you know, or our grandchildren. But, you know, what if we took the time to intentionally um, have conversations about who we are so that when we had difficult conversations, we trust each other enough to be able to say, I want to push you to go a little further. So we have contractors coming in from outside saying, if you're white, you're racist. It's probably not a starter. You know, it's probably not a conversation. Right. That's gonna, right. You know, so so that um, that really has kind of motivated me to kind of help um, I think what I was looking for is kind of help clergy in particular, but um, the members of the Christian Disciples of Christ to become public theologians. You know, one of the things as a disciple, one of the things I like is that we get to all be theologians, right? Um, so what if we were public theologians about the things that, you know, really lighten God's heart, you know? So, you know, one way to do that is maybe become a, a congregation that's certified anti-racist. Maybe one of you may be to invite a, a person, just an individual to Panera Bread and have tea, you know, and get to know them. So you can have that conversation. It's, you know, it's a both and, it's never an either or. And I think that's the ongoing work. And I think that the problem with this work is that racism is a problem. And we've stayed in the area of problem identification, which is what the training would do. It would just identify the problem, but it never let us out of jail, right? We're just, mm -hmm. we just get together and we just be in the problem. And I think that um, the reason why Reconciliation Ministry is a mission fund is to help us find our vocational mission around anti-racism. And that's gonna look different even within regions, but definitely across regions. So it's gonna look different in different congregations. I'm working with, um, one of our churches in downstate Indiana to, um, they have a summer forum and they wanna move from just like a Sunday school summer forum to like, we wanna have something to do as a result of every time we get together. And they have volunteered also to be one of our um, beta congregations that will be certified as anti-racist. So I'm really excited about, and I have no idea what this is gonna look like. I mean, right. I have a framework and then they will personalize it and contextualize it. And I think that's the work. Yeah. So to be clear, uh, the work that the, the branching out into congregational uh, uh, training 
something that uh, I guess was being developed before I, about the time I retired. And so again, this is kind of exciting news to me. Is that primarily the teabag experience that you're targeting? Is that, is that, are they the same two things? No, that, that it can be incorporated into that. So one of the things that the one bag of tea also offers is it's, if, if you decided to be, to be a congregation that offers one bag of tea, then we're also inviting you uh, to be a one in 1000 congregation. So those two things collapse, they go together. So and one in 1000 is that an individual or a congregation can give $100 over and above their annual reconciliation offering to be a one in 1000 congregation that offers this one bag of tea uh, conversation so that reconciliation ministry, the mission fund uh, always has $100,000 available to um, catalyze anti-racism projects in the congregations and in regions. We have some regions that may not have a, a lot of money in their coffers and we get caught up in our um, legalese that will, you know, the, the, you have to apply for the region. Like my grants can only come through, go to regions. They can't come from congregations. Well, that doesn't help if you have a congregation that has a really good idea and it could be a one and done. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be something that's gonna last for five years. So if we have those one in 1000 congregations that are doing these one bag of tea conversations. That would be awesome. They're funding our ability to do these grants as well. So they're engaged. They're engaged by doing one bag of tea. They're engaged by committing, um, by pledging $100 over their normal giving. Um, and then part of being certified, we are thinking that this would be one of the I would say marks, but it'd be one of the activities in achieving whatever this mark would be of an anti-racist congregation. So this way it becomes a both and, they, they become part of um, fueling the fund, the mission fund, but they also uh, become uh, active participants in scripting um, what their witness will be as an anti-racist congregation. So I guess they're kind of all together, but they're, you know, it's not either or. So you could be a one bag of tea congregation, you can just host one and that's one and done. You know what I mean? The, the goal is to do it and to commit to the annual fund. So we have the $100,000 available every year. Um, but if you want to be a certified congregation anti-racist, that would be one of the activities, you know, of the many that would help you in your process. This has been shared in prior podcasts uh, in some form, but the relationship building piece uh, where I've seen that work the best and at least for me in transformational ways is the work that, that I've been privileged to do in the general life of the general church. When you see the leadership across the life of our church and have the opportunity to set and embrace, um, you know, the stories and the lives of, of such diversity, uh, you know, in these places, I can honestly say that's the thing I probably miss the most in retirement is that, you know, um, moving out of that place of privileged conversation that occurs in regional settings and general church settings back into my little tiny white congregation in rural Kentucky and, you know, and in retirement is that gap is pretty huge and you know, and so what I've tried to do with the members of my congregation is to bring them back into that life I knew mm -hmm. and to introduce part of what we're doing with the podcast is to introduce them to this extraordinary cast of people, of leaders, of, you know, deeply faithful, deeply spiritual people who, you know, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to know and embrace these people and their ministries. Mm -hmm. And when we do, it transforms us. I mean, we become a part of the transformation process, but that's all relationship. It's all learning and knowing who we are and the gifts that we bring and how we complement each other, how the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts when we begin to own one another in those kinds of wonderful ways. And, and um, I do want to say, April, that from what I've observed over the years is that you have been quite a champion for us in creating the space mm -hmm. for uh, for those kinds of relationships to develop. And, you know, I think it's one of the uh, tangents of the Ministry of Reconciliation is creating 
is creating the space for this to naturally occur. And, uh, and, you know, thankfully you blessed it and, you know, welcome it. you haven't tried to wrestle it away from <laughs> us to claim it, you know, for some other cause. But um, I, I wish there was a way, I just so wish there was a way that the whole church could experience, um, you know, what we would experience in a general board meeting, and not the business aside, but the relational dynamics that occur in a general board meeting or setting in now in the College of Regional Ministers meeting, and, and various other settings that you're privileged to set in. And um, I, I don't want us to lose the sight that that too is a, is a product, is a, some of the fruit of your work of, in the Ministry of Reconciliation. We are, we are a radically different looking church today than we were when I started ministry many years ago. And I thank God for that. And you've had a strong hand in that. Thank, thank you for God. that. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. I think the relationship pieces, I always think about when I first, I left the college, right? I'm at this college campus, you know, they're usually very well coiffed lawns and trees and, and you just bump into people all day. That's what you do. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's all you do is relationship and you build community. I mean, going to a, um, a headquarters type um, environment and I'm thinking, I started in July of 2008. So that's our, um, our, our even year where we, travel significantly to the different um, conventions and um, uh, convocations and convenings. So we do a lot of traveling, particularly in the summer. And I remember after my first year, I thought, wow, I really, I don't like travel. I don't like going to TSA, through TSA, <laughs> but I love once I get there, you know, I get, and when I go to the office, it's not the same, you know what I mean? I, I, and I think I need to be located in the office in Indiana, Indianapolis, because I need to build those relationships, obviously. Um, but I really enjoy being in congregations and being at regional assemblies um, because I did get to build relationships. I really got to, I got to hear people say, honestly, the training from hell and mm -hmm. they weren't trying to dismiss me. They were like, right. no, I experienced that as a training from hell. That's important feedback. You know, you're not gonna get that on evaluation sometimes, you know, or right. that evaluation may not make it up to me. So it's, right. and so that was really important. So I think the relationship piece, I saw something on the news last night and here in Chicago, there's a young man who went to school in Nebraska, a young African-American male who went to school in Nebraska. So you already feel he's probably was pretty lonely when he was there. And um, he um, had some type of I don't know, some seasons of homelessness for some reason, but he finished his degree and came back to Chicago and he started a not-for-profit um, that's called My, My Hood, My Neighbor. And he takes the children that are least likely to ever leave the hood and he invites them to go to other hoods to meet other young people. Hmm. So to just kind of expand their horizons. And when Greg was talking, it made me think of that, is that what if our congregations could somehow or other go to other hoods? To Because I think what makes the our, our, our conversation, part of what I'm writing about for my doctorate in ministry project is, is it time to redefine reconciliation? Hmm. Um, not just reconciliation ministry, that's a byproduct of that. But is it time for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ to define, we're the only mainline denomination who responded to the Black Manifesto in 1969 to do something about the urban unrest, um, but we're the only one that maintains the name reconciliation. So is it time to redefine that? Now I have a conclusion in my head and I'm praying that my writing will make will be totally different than what I'm thinking in my head. Um, but the reality is in 1969, we were different. Mm -hmm. we, you know, reconciliation meant something different then. It meant um, let's come together and let's invite those poor people you know, in as long as we keep reminding that they're those poor people, you know. Um, so now we're we're wiser, we're more educated, we're some of us are more affluent, we have access, different types of access. So what are we inviting people to in a witness and an identity of a ministry called reconciliation? 
And my quest is to have a beta group of congregations to tell me that. What does it mean in the 21st century, in this third decade of the 21st century, post-George Floyd, post-Brianna Taylor, uh, post-Ahmaud Aubrey? What does it mean in this season um, to be called reconciliation ministry? Are we redefining? You know, my argument, I want to argue, is it, is it a time to redefine reconciliation? Uh, and what does it mean in our current context? I think when we get out of our hood, it will have a very different definition than it does when we stay in the same place. Mm-hmm. So that's my that's my goal is to get people to start asking some different types of questions of themselves and of the church. Recently, go ahead, Alex. I was just thinking about the importance of what you were talking about there, and the gentleman has discovered i was recalling recently reading an article that like 70 percent of adults in the united states live within some less than 100 miles of where they grew up Mm, um and i've never been closer than 100 miles it it was like 20 miles some 70 percent of american adults live within 20 miles of where they grew up and that because we traveled a lot when I was young and we went to all the you know parks and we did all that. I saw lots of different people, experienced lots of different things. It's just odd to me to think of somebody, the importance of, of, of getting that broader perspective, of understanding that the world extends beyond the county in which I live. Um, let alone the state in which I live or even the country in which we live. Right. Uh, That's that's an important piece. Um, And and really, we've had some opportunity, and Greg and I are doing a little bit of work on this, but we've had some opportunity with with COVID and the restrictions that we've had. Now we have a way to get to meet people in different areas. Right. And we don't have to leave the comfort of our own home. We can have those difficult conversations through the internet and, and if sufficient trust is built in the relationship, and I believe it can be uh, in this format, uh, if sufficient trust is built in a relationship, then we are in a comfortable spot and able to have a, a situation or a conversation that takes us out of our comfort zones. Right. Um, and so you cut your video off, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not that I've ever done that. <laughs> I did a mediation. One of the things that I've always wanted to include as part of um, the work of reconciliation ministry is um, we have a cadre of folks who do anti-racism training and the Lombard Mennonite Center, you know, trains people on conflict mediation. And um, I thought, well, we should just either make all of our trainers mediators or get another cadre, another group of folks that do conflict mediation. And I, I was asked to do one recently on Zoom and I really did not want to do on Zoom. And all of my um, concerns were affirmed when we actually did do it on Zoom, uh, because you know we had these we had these um, guidelines. You know, we agreed to them every time we got together, a covenant per se. And um, we asked people not to cut their videos off. You know, but it was a I mean, mediation is a difficult conversation. Right? We're we're about to say you you did me wrong, mm-hmm. and I want you to suffer like I did, you know, and we don't normally have, we're not that, we're not that honest. I mean, for me, that's a good mediation. When one person says, I want to see you suffer like I did, then I know we're, 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 we're doing some truth seeking here. Um, And it's very, it was very hard to do, but having done that once, I recognize that sometimes we can't wait till we can be in person. We just might have to use the um, forms of media that we have. Um, to to make this happen. And, and it, it does help I me. Mean, I'm now back within 100 miles of where I grew up, right? But, you know, because of um, the work that I uh, now do, and now, if you, you know, look back at my trajectory, I totally was, tra- was supposed to end up here. You know, you couldn't have told me this in high school, you couldn't tell me this in college, um, that I would end up here. But I am I, I just had a significant birthday, and I invited, well, I was invited by 
two best friends from college came home to hang out with me. And I was just so amazed. I, I am so not like you all anymore at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We have so like outgrown each other, but we still love and appreciate each other. But it's like, no, that is so not my world, you know. But but we, you know, one's a, a educator and one's a healthcare worker, one's a, a nurse. Um, so you can see the common threads of what we do, but we are raggedy different pe people. And um, but the fact that um, we've been outside of where we've grown up has influenced our ability to at least stay at the table together. And it's like, I can't believe you want to spend a birthday with me, you know, because now the work that I do causes me to be more of a truth teller. And um, we don't see each other like we did when we were kids, right? So we're not used to telling each other the truth so quickly, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, Minnesota nice or American nice, right? And now, you know, we're getting up in age. It's like, it's no time for that. Let me tell you, you shouldn't do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, but I mean, it's just the way that we change, but we, ch we still are iron that sharpens iron. Yes. And I think getting outside of our comfort zone um, is okay as long as we can get ourselves to a point that we recognize that we're comfortable in a place that's not serving us well. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard conversation. And that's been, that's, that's the pushback we'll always get when we introduce a conversation about being anti-racist is that we're asking you not to just get outside your comfort zone. I mean, you know, you can go zip line to get outside your comfort zone, but to stay in, at the table and stay in this conversation is a longer and a much more committed ask. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that is going to require, one of the things my research is showing me is that the word reconciliation has a component that says not just to unify, but to remove. And mm -hmm. I am extremely intrigued about this piece of removal because mm -hmm. I have a hunch that what that means is that if reconciliation is a transforming mechanism for the members in the life of our church, everybody has to move so that what is the barrier between us can be removed. Yes. So no one is unaffected. Mm. And the issue is we don't want to be affected. We want to be the, we want to be the party that's least affected. Yeah. You know, Wow. that's the work, you know, that mm. we have to do. Mm. And we all won't get there at the same time. And that's the hard part. Right. Is that we there'll be those those two best friends from 40 years ago when you were in college they're like did you just say what you you know or like <laughs> do you just do that normally you know i was like yeah, I live, yeah. yeah right, exactly i've had tea <laughs> in kenya you know with 17 year olds who were like they're keeping us tea five times a day you know what i mean <laughs> and helping them say to their hosts that thank you and not don't bring me tea again. You know what I mean? So I've, I've been in environments where it's like, you know, tea is a choice, you know, whereas you've been in places where tea is not a choice, you know, you have tea, you know, or you, ex hospitality is in tea. For us, it's like hospitality is like, I opened the door for you, you know? Right. So learning how to negotiate in different types of environments with different types of people is a process. And for people like us, it's exhilarating, right? But for people that never had to do that, it's painful. Yeah. So that's the that's the thing we have to always be attuned to is that we're signing up to go through a painful process. But you know, life is a painful process. You know, yeah. it's not always that. That's the thing we have to remember. It's just not always that. One of one of the strategies, and it's not so much a strategy as it is just a lived reality for Alex and me, is as we you know do our work with disciples men, is that is we want to help people understand that this is not that this is as much an opportunity to experience a more fuller expression of life mm. than it is that's something that I'm giving up. You know, so far the narrative for men, especially white men, has been, you know, we're we're being asked to sacrifice everything we know and love. And that's been a part of our identity. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's not been my experience. My experience is, is that my identity has grown because there's more experience. I've, I've got to experience a broader part of the world 
you know, and, and, you know, a variety of different people, uh, black and white, you know what I mean, of, of all racial ethnicities. And, and every time a piece of me grows, a new piece is added to who I am. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't see that as loss. I see it as gain. And, you know, now there's a, I'm more, I'm more complex than I once was because there's more of me to deal with. And now without a doubt, we need to have, we need to have people who help us process and understand what's taking place. And I think that's the beauty of the, the, you know, the work that you do is you give us a a form for those conversations to occur. But I, I do think it's hard if you don't have a chance to experience get to know, listen to, talk with like, you know, with people who are different than yourself. You know, what I, I did not know the statistic about Alex just quoted. Yeah. But the people who I know for whom that's true, we have no nothing in common anymore. Wow. There's just no there's just no connection other than heritage mm-hmm. and history. And uh, as Alex knows, I don't do Facebook for that reason because I got tired of having to defend who I am against who they are. And, you know, they can't, they have no mechanism for understanding how I could be the kind of person I am today, just simply because they've never had the opportunities and experiences that I've been granted. And I don't know how we package that. And I think that's probably certainly one of the challenges I think you face on a regular basis, April, is how do we, is how do we help people experience the gift of difference? Yeah. And I, I, you know, that's been our, our great challenge in, in doing uh, our work with Disciples Men. And, uh, you know, I don't have an answer for that other than that we just keep trying. And, we, you know, we just keep calling on people like you who have got better insights than we do and make sure that we incorporate those in our work. And, um, but it is, I just, you know, I just feel, I do ache. You know, I have family members and friends. I, I just absolutely ache for because their world is so small. Mm-hmm. It's just so blasted small. And I, I just can't imagine what an impoverished existence that is based on the life I've got to live. And so anyway, I, I, but I, I want us that we have been focusing on trying to help people understand this is an opportunity. This is a gift. Mm-hmm. This is not a, Oh, look, another sacrifice you're asking, you know, white guys to make. No, no, this is an opportunity for you to be far more than what you've ever been if you're willing to make the journey. Right, right. It's, it's, a, it's asking people to change is very, very difficult. Um, I mean, it's just, the seven last words of a dying church, right? Mm. You know, we've never done, and, and we, are, we are rooted mm. in that, you know. Um, there's that one thing that you can't ask me to do because it required me to change, you know? So um, I may have, when I went and moved to Washington DC, I was unaware of this, maybe until I got there, um, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know a soul. And I didn't, that did not come across my radar to be as a checklist. I don't even, who do you know there? It's like, this is a great opportunity. I've always wanted to live in DC. This is going to be wonderful, you know? Um, and it turned out to be wonderful. I got there with my job and my job let me go in about 18 months or within the year, I think, I, I lost my job. Wow. And then, um, it, I was so much more spiritual when I wasn't a minister sometimes, I believe. Um, <laughs> And it, it, I was unfazed. As I was almost like I knew this was coming, and um, I had prayed before I left that um, God would give me the opportunity um, to go to seminary. And I, and I, as and as an aside, I had said in this prayer, I remember saying, "Oh, and by the way, if I get that transfer to DC, that would be awesome too, God. You know, because you you know you're a genie, so I know you want to grant me all my wishes." <laughs> um, and, you know, sometimes, depending on how you understand your faith, God does that. You know what I mean? He granted me all of my wishes in one. I mean, you know, he get, I got transferred to Washington, D.C. And then I lost my job and I got to go to seminary. You know, it's like it didn't feel that way. But I mean, but what happened was I was not a young woman then. And I made friends for life. 
mm. in my 40s, you know, I, I had already decided, you know, I met my best friends, those truth tellers, you know, as they say, my rider dies, you know, I met those people in college. They know where the bodies are buried. I don't need to know anybody else. Do you know what I mean? And then these things happen to you, you know, and I did not know a soul when I left Chicago to move to Washington, DC. And I never wanted for a thing when I lost my job. I went to seminary. I found a new job as soon as, at the same time I applied for seminary and got accepted, I found a new job. And um, three weeks in the seminary, I was like, this is impossible. Like, who does this? Like, who goes to work as an adult and then shows up, you know, for a full load of courses? And I quit my job because I had a, I made a lot of money back in those days. You know, it makes kind of money in church, but still, I made a lot of money back in those days. And I was just, I don't know. I think I was dumb. I don't think I was full of faith. I think I was just dumb. <laughs> and I can't, to this day, I could show up in DC right now and call someone from the airport. And I was like, you want to go to dinner? I could say, you want to go to dinner? And these people fed me for three years. You know what I mean? And, and they still feed me, wow. you know? Um, and who, you, know, you just don't know, you know? So I, my faith was built on difference because I experienced it. And we have to find that thing. Like, I don't know what, I jumped up and took a flight to DC and moved my life there. Um, but there might be something you couldn't get me to do, you know, not knowing, mm-hmm. you know, people. I mean, it's hard to get me to come to Indianapolis. I got to tell you, I was like, and I knew people there. And I was like, no, <laughs> it's not Chicago. No, you know what I mean? So, I mean, but there, so for every one of us, there's that thing. And this thing, um, this social and political structure that we've all been conscripted into, um, feeds that fear. So it's not just the, it's not just personal poverty. It's everything that we have learned that you are giving up something, you know, if you entertain those people. I mean, think about Jesus entertained tax collectors and he was ostracized for that. Mm-hmm. And the thing that most, most of us are afraid of is being ostracized, right? Right. So, you know, it's, I know that I can't, tolerate I can't be around people who aren't open to transformation and change comfortably but now I I have the privilege of leading a directive and a a mission for a church that was reticent to change you know and I sometimes I wonder like not only how I'm still standing, but how are we still standing? I mean, I have to tell you all, of the mainline denominations, this is the poorest that um, for this mission has always been the, well, that's not true. When we first started off, we did exactly what the Black Manifesto said. They said, we want you to raise $500 million. And I mean, we want you to divide up $500 million, all your denominations. And we raised our million for three years in a row before we were formalized ministry of the church. Isn't that funny? When we became formalized, it became more difficult to do. <laughs> we raised the money, we did it, but we're the only mainline denomination that I'm aware of. So this is not science, but I'm pretty sure I can prove this quickly through the denominations, um, different denominations, your book. We're the only one that has sustained without loss. And we had a chance to give up this ministry. You guys know better than I do. We had two opportunities that I'm aware of to give up and we did not. Mm-hmm. And the Episcopal Church can't say that. The Evangelical Lutheran Church cannot say that. They're, they're doing a marvelous job. And the Episcopal Church has a great anti-racism uh, resource, you know, that I love, but they, they laid down the mantle. They took it and laid it down. We never laid down the mantle. And so that could be why we're still standing. You know what I mean? The, and I, I tell people all the time, the reason why I stay, is it's hard to stay sometimes. I say the reason why I stay is not just because I'm foolish, you know, um, is because we have taken a little and we have trusted God and we've been able, and however we understand God, somehow or other we've took this church 
and said, this is what we believe God is calling us to do. And we've taken a little and we stayed on the wall like Ezra. We stayed on the wall. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm proud to be a part of that, even though it's difficult. I mean, it is very difficult, but I'm proud to be a part of that. I'd rather be a part of something that faces resistance than something that gives in, you know, and um, decides to do the wrong things for all the right reasons. I'd rather do the right thing, you know what I mean? And um, challenge people um, and, and, and be challenged by people that maybe, you know, I'm not seeing this the same way you are, help me. You know what I mean? Help us. And it's hard. I mean, you and our personal families, we know that this is hard. You know, it's hard to be at ME and like, unless you come over to my side. Um, but there's real value in this work as a collective, you know, and, and, and the fact that we don't know um, what the end is going to be as we see in the Black church. I'm just going to stay and see what the end's going to be. We don't know what the end's going to be, but we know that we're on the right track. The, the problem that we'll always have is that it's human nature um to live in either or um narratives you know your narrative is counter to my narrative so one of our narratives must be wrong you know um one of the pieces that i'd like to explore with these congregations is what is your narrative you know when i was a chaplain i would visit disciples congregations it's the weirdest thing i was a chaplain in western illinois um i could walk to five different disciples congregations so we, I was in DC, I could walk to two, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, I'm in this small town, you know, and we've got five, but I would always say to them, because I was a disciple wearing a Lutheran hat, and I would say, what is, and Lutherans are very into vocation. You know, if you think about Luther's legacy, Luther's legacy is vocation. And I would always ask our congregations, like, what is your vocation? We've got five disciple congregations within walking distance of each other. Um, what do you do? What is God calling you to do differently? He's calling First Christian Moline to do that First Christian East Moline that only they can do. And that's the work we sometimes abandon. You know, and I always tell people, like, for me, and I want people to join me in this work, this is the work I cannot not do. I wish I could not do it, but this is the work I cannot not do. What is the thing? What is the work that your congregation cannot not do? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you are just a, the best food pantry. You know what I mean? But if you do it well, and this is what God called you to do, then you just be the best food pantry. You know, stop trying to be, have the best Girl Scout troop. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. I want to amen that big time. Oh. And I wish that, I hope that's a message that our church is here. Yes, um, I I really I really do. As Alex notes, I'm big on being true to self, whether it's an individual or a congregation. That we all have our role to fulfill if we choose to discern what it is and live it out. And so again, thank you, April. I want to amen. Yes, that very much. Thank that was you. awesome. I, I want to ask a question, and you may have already answered it uh, for us, and that is, what is what gives you the greatest satisfaction? as you look back over your ministry as Minister of Reconciliation? Oh boy, greatest satisfaction. Oh boy, there's a few things. Um, I wanna say the, the, the folks that um, are now taking up the mantle to do this work. So um, I was a youth minister before I even went to seminary um, and came out of seminary while I was seminary was a youth minister. And so of course I have a huge heart for young adults, right? Um, and to see our young people take our little anti-racism training, uh, I'm gonna call it a narrative now, but it normally it's just a, it's an outline or whatever, to take that training that we um, learned from Crossroads Ministries and um, to take that and say, I can say the same thing, but in 21st century language, yeah. you know, and I'm just so grateful that um, they didn't, they, for those, those young people that are willing to take on this mantle and are not afraid to 
um, allow it to be fluid instead of stagnant. Mm -hmm. So I'm just really grateful for, I guess I say their names, um, uh, Betty Hill Soto. Um, she's well known to us. She's going to be like a superstar. Well, she always she always has been since the day I met her. She's a superstar. Um, uh, Chesla Nicholson um, from Disciples Women. Um, and believe it or not, <laughs> she would, today's her birthday, so she probably would not be like to be called a young adult, but Yvonne Gilmore, you know. Uh, yeah. So the young adults and the way in which they've taken the model uh, for anti-racism education and owned it uh, and translated it. So I'm grateful for that. And one one of the my favorite opportunities I had um, as executive director is um, it came out of pain. A colleague of mine was um, downsized, is a nice way to put it. And it was an African American woman. And we at the time did not in the general church had a good track record with African-Americans in leadership. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to the general minister and president at that time, that in five years, we're gonna have a mass exodus in the College of Regional Ministers and in the cabinet. Women are graduating from seminary at higher rates than men are we need to have a leadership program for women of color. And um, through a, a grant through Orany Scott Foundation, we were able to do one cohort. I would love to do a cohort every two years. Um, and um, so it's similar to what we, know, what we know as Bethany Fellows, but it was just this little, um, I wanna say this little janky, you know, group of six young um, women from, Different backgrounds and who were in their congregations, but not just leaders in the church. All but one of them, and one is moved away out of the country, are active leaders in the church right Praise now. Praise God. Like middle, like not like like directors. You yeah. know, so I'm just so grateful. And Betty and, and Chesla are, are two of those young women. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. That's great. Um, as we. We've been having a great conversation. I want to be honor, honor your time as well. Um, but I would like to ask one kind of final question. What um, what message, what what challenge would you have for uh, us as disciples men um, as, as we look towards the future of reconciliation uh, in the Christian church, disciples of Christ? Hmm. I would say... Get involved in concrete and tangible ways, no matter what. Mm. No matter who says you're not gonna be on my team anymore. As Greg showed us earlier, you get new teammates. Right. Um, it's so important for the church. You know, the, the unfortunate narrative that white men have gotten since the inception of this country is entitlement yep. um, and entitlement can be a really good thing and it can be a horrible thing for um, for those who assume it's theirs but also for those whom don't have that level of access and um, even if you embrace you know the most liberal or the most conservative of theologies there is nothing that belongs to us. Right. So you're not giving up anything. So get involved in concrete and tangible ways, not to bring you glory, but for the glory of the God whose name we share. Wow. Awesome. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, April. I do appreciate your time today. Um, great opportunities. And now I've got some other things to work on. <laughs> it's always a good podcast when I come out with like 
a, a page full of notes of, of things I want to, to think about and, and, and do work on in the future. So I'm teaching a class at LTS this week, so I'll be more than happy to give you some homework. <laughs> I'm not writing your paper for you. It's okay. not going to happen. <laughs> Been down that road. I've done that once and I'm not doing it again. <laughs> April, thank you for all the ways you've blessed my life over the years and our and all the ways our paths have crossed in ministry. And uh, thank you for your continuing leadership that you provide our church. And uh, know that our prayers are with you, our love is with you. And uh, if there's anything Alex and I or disciples men can do for you in a tangible way, awesome. uh, don't hesitate to ask. We're there. We're there. All right. All right. Thank you all so much as well. It's been wonderful. And getting to know you, Alex, and our journey, Greg, has been amazing. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you all. And uh, thanks again to uh, to Greg and April for joining us on this uh, edition of Disciples Men podcast. And we hope to talk to you again soon. Our special thanks to our good friend, the Reverend Dr. Dean Phelps, for providing the special music of this podcast. You can discover more of Dean's music at deanphelpsmusic.com. And you can learn more about the ministry of Disciples Men on Facebook and through discipleshomemissions.org.